Fucanelli, master alchemist, the mystère de cathedral. An adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. Preface to the first edition. For a disciple, it is an ungrateful and difficult task to introduce a work written by his own master. It is therefore not my intention to analyze here Le Mystère de Cathedrale, nor to underline its high tone and its profound teaching. I most humbly acknowledge my incapacity and prefer to give the reader the task of evaluating it and the brothers of Heliopolis, the pleasure of receiving this synthesis made so superbly by one of themselves. Time and truth will do the rest. For a long time now, the author of this book has not been among us. The man has disappeared, and I cannot without sorrow recall the image of this industrious and wise master, to whom I owe all, while lamenting that he should so soon have departed. His numerous friends, those unknown brothers who hoped to obtain from him the solution to the mysterious where boom dimisum, missing word, will join with me in lamenting his loss. Having reached the pinnacle of knowledge, could he refuse to obey the commands of destiny? No man is a prophet in his own country. Perhaps this old saying gives the occult reason for the convulsion produced in the solitary and studious life of a philosopher by the flash of revelation. Under the influence of that divine flame, the former man is entirely consumed. Name, family, native land, and the illusions, all the errors, all the vanities fall to dust. And like the phoenix of the poets, a new personality is reborn from the ashes. That, at least, is how the philosophic tradition would have it. My master knew this. He disappeared when the fatal hour struck, when the sign was accomplished. Who, then, would dare to set himself above the law? As for me, in spite of the anguish of a painful but inevitable separation, I would act no differently myself if I were to experience today that joyful event which forces the adept to flee from the homage of the world. Fucanelli is no more. But we have at least this consolation, that his thought remains warm and vital, enshrined forever in these pages. Thanks to him, the Gothic cathedral has yielded up its secret, and it is not without surprise and emotion that we learn how our ancestors fashioned the first stone of its foundations that dazzling gem, more precious than gold itself, on which Jesus built his church. All truth, all philosophy, and all religion rest on this unique and sacred stone. Many people inflated with presumption believe themselves capable of fashioning it. Yet how rare are the elect, those who are sufficiently simple, learned, and skillful to complete the task. But that is of little importance. It is enough for us to know that the wonders of the Middle Ages hold the same positive truth, the same scientific basis as the pyramids of Egypt, the temples of Greece, the Roman catacombs, and the Byzantine basilicas. This is the overall theme of Fulcanelli's book. The Hermeticists, those at least who are worthy of the name, will discover other things here. From the clash of ideas, it is said, fight bursts forth. They will recognize here that is from the confrontation of the book and the building that the spirit is released and the letter dies. Fulcanelli has made the first effort on their behalf. It is up to the hermeticist to make the last. The remaining way is short, but it is essential to be able to recognize it and not to travel without knowing where one is going. Is something further required? I know, not from having discovered it myself, but because I was assured of it by the author more than ten years ago, that the key to the major arcanum is given quite openly in one of the figures, illustrating the present work. And this key consists quite simply in a color revealed to the artisan right from the first work. No philosopher, to my knowledge, has emphasized the importance of this essential point. In revealing it, I'm obeying the last wishes of Fulcanelli, and my conscience is clear. And now, may I be permitted, in the name of the brothers of Heliopolis, and in my own name, warmly to thank the artist, to whom my master has entrusted the illustration of his work. For it is indeed due to the sincere and scrupulous talent of the artist, Julien Champagne, 
that La Mestera de Cathedral is able to wrap its esotericism in a superb cloak of original plates. E. Cancelier, F. C. H. October 1925. Preface to the Second Edition. When Le Mystère de Cathedral was written down in 1922, Fulcanelli had not yet received the gift of God, but he was so close to supreme illumination that he judged it necessary to wait and to keep the anonymity which he had always observed more perhaps from natural inclination than from strict regard for the rule of secrecy. We must say, certainly, that this man of another age, with his strange appearance, his old-fashioned manners, and his unusual occupations, involuntarily attracted the attention of the idle, the curious, and the foolish. Much greater, however, was the attention he was to attract a little later by the complete disappearance of his common presence. Indeed, right from the time that his first writings were compiled, the master expressed his absolute and unshakable resolve to keep his real identity in the background, and to insist that the label given him by society should be unequivocally exchanged for the pseudonym, already familiar in his case, required by tradition. The celebrated name is so firmly secured even to the remotest future that it would be absolutely impossible for any patronymic even the most brilliant or most highly esteemed to be substituted for it, one should at least realize that the author of a work of such high quality would not abandon it the moment it came into the world, unless he had pertinent and compelling reasons long pondered for doing so. These reasons, on a very different plane, led to the renunciation at which we cannot but wonder, since even the loftiest authors are susceptible to the fame that comes from the printed word. It should be said that the case of Fulcanelli is unique in the realm of letters in our day, since it derives from an infinitely superior code of ethics. In obedience to this, the new adept attunes his destiny to that of his exalted predecessors, who, like himself, appeared at their appointed time on the great highway like beacons of hope and mercy. What perfect filial duty carried to the ultimate degree in order that the eternal, universal, and indivisible truth might continually be reaffirmed in its double aspect, the spiritual and the scientific. Fulcanelli, like most of the adepts of old, in casting off the worn-out husk of his former self, left nothing on the road but the phantom trace of his signature, a signature whose aristocratic nature is amply shown by his visiting card. Anyone with knowledge of the alchemical books of the past will accept as a basic premise that oral instruction from master to pupil is the most valuable of all. Fulcanelli received his own initiation in this way, as I myself received mine from him, although I owe it to myself to state that Siliani had already opened wide for me the great door of the labyrinth during that week in 1915, when the new edition of his little work was published. In my introduction to the Douze Clés de la Philosophie, I repeated deliberately that Basil Valentine was my master's initiator, partly because this gave me the opportunity to change the epithet. That is to say, to substitute, for the sake of accuracy, first initiator for true initiator, which I had used before in my preface to the Demur Philosophale. At that time I did not know of the very moving letter, which I shall quote a little later which owes its striking effect to the warm enthusiasm and fervent expression of the writer. Both writer and recipient remain anonymous, because the signature has been scratched out and there is no superscription. The recipient was undoubtedly Fucanelli's master, and Fucanelli left this revealing letter among his own papers. It bears two crossed brown lines at the folds from having been kept for a long time in his pocketbook which did not, however, protect it from the fine, greasy dusk of the enormous stove going all the time. So for many years the author of Le Mystère de Cathedrale kept as a talisman the written proof of the triumph of his true initiator, which nothing any longer prevents me from publishing, especially since it provides us with a powerful and correct idea of the sublime level at which the great work takes place. I do not think that anyone will object to the length of this strange epistle, and it would certainly be a pity to shorten it by a single word. 
My old friend, this time you have really had the gift of God. It is a great blessing, and for the first time I understand how rare this favor is. Indeed, I believe that, in its unfathomable depth of simplicity, the arcanum cannot be found by the force of reason alone, however subtle and well-trained it may be. At last you possess the treasure of treasures. Let us give thanks to the divine light which made you a participant in it. Moreover, you have richly deserved it on account of your unshakable belief in truth, the constancy of your effort, your perseverance in sacrifice, and also, let us not forget, your good works. When my wife told me the good news, I was stunned with surprise and joy, and was so happy that I could hardly contain myself. So much so that I said to myself, let us hope that we shall not have to pay for this hour of intoxication with some terrible aftermath. But, although I was only briefly informed about the matter, I believed that I understood it. And what confirms me in my certainty is that the fire goes out only when the work is accomplished, and the whole tinctorial mass impregnates the glass, which from decantation to decantation remains absolutely saturated and becomes luminous like the sun. You have extended generosity to the point of associating us with this high and occult knowledge, to which you have full right and which is entirely personal to you. We, more than any, can appreciate its worth, and we, more than any, are capable of being eternally grateful to you for it. You know that the finest phrases, the most eloquent protestations, are not worth as much as the moving simplicity of the single utterance. You are good. And it is for this great virtue that God has crowned you with the diadem of true royalty. He knows that you will make noble use of the scepter and of the priceless endowment which it provides. We have for a long time known you as the blue mantle of your friends in trouble. This charitable cloak has suddenly grown much larger, and your noble shoulders are now covered by the whole azure of the sky and its great sun. May you long enjoy this great and rare good fortune to the joy and consolation of your friends, and even of your enemies, for misfortune cancels out everything. From henceforth you will have at your disposal the magic ring which works all miracles. My wife, with the inexplicable intuition of sensitives, had a really strange dream. She saw a man enveloped in all the colors of the rainbow and raised up to the sun. We did not have long to wait for the explanation. What a miracle! What a beautiful and triumphant reply to my letter, so crammed with arguments and theoretically so exact. But yet how far from the truth, from reality. Ah, one can almost say that he who has greeted the morning star has forever lost the use of his sight and his reason because he is fascinated by this false light and cast into the abyss. Unless, as in your case, a great stroke of fate comes to pull him unexpectedly from the edge of the precipice. I am longing to see you, my old friend, to hear you tell me about the last hours of anguish and of triumph. But be assured that I shall never be able to express in words the great joy that we have felt and all the gratitude we have at the bottom of our hearts. Alleluia! I send you my love and congratulations. Your old... He who knows how to do the work by the one and only Mercury has found the most perfect thing. That is to say, he has received the light and accomplished the magistery. One passage may have disconcerted the attentive reader, who is already familiar with the main ideas of the hermetic problem. This was when the intimate and wise correspondent exclaimed, Ah, one can almost say that he who has greeted the morning star, has forever lost the use of his sight and his reason, because he is fascinated by their false light and cast into the abyss. Does not this phrase apparently contradict what I stated twenty years ago in a study of the Golden Fleece? Namely, that the star is the great sign of the work, that it sets its seal on the philosophic matter, that it teaches the alchemist that he has found not the light of fools, but the light of the wise? that it is the crown of wisdom, and that it is called the morning star? It may have been noted that I specified briefly that the hermetic star is admired first of all in the mirror of the arts, or mercury, before being discovered in the chemical sky. 
where it shines in an infinitely more discreet manner. Torn between my charitable duty to the reader and the need for preserving secrecy, I might have made a virtue of paradox, and pleading arcane wonders could then have recopied some lines written in a very old exercise book, after one of those learned talks by Fulcanelli. Those talks accompanied by cold sweet coffee were the delight of my assiduous and studious adolescence when I was greedy for priceless knowledge. Our star is single, and yet it is double. Know how to distinguish its true imprint from its image, and you will observe that it shines with more intensity in the light of day than in the darkness of night. This statement corroborates and completes the no less categorical and solemn one made by Basil Valentine, Deus Clé. Two stars have been granted to man by the gods in order to lead him to the great wisdom. Observe them. O oh, man, and follow their light with constancy, because it is wisdom. Are they not the two stars shown in one of the little alchemical paintings in the Franciscan convent of Simier, accompanied by the Latin inscription expressing the saving virtue inherent in the night shining of the star? Cum luce salutem, with light salvation. At any rate, if you even have the slightest philosophic sense and take the trouble to meditate on the words of the undoubted adepts quoted above, you will have the key with which Siliani unlocks the door of the temple. But if you do not understand, then read the words of Fulcanelli again and do not go looking elsewhere for a teaching which no other book could give so precisely. There are, then, two stars which, improbable as it may seem, are really only one star, the star shining on the mystic virgin, who is at one and at the same time our mother, Mare, and the hermetic sea, Myrrh, announces the conception and is but a reflection of that other, which precedes the miraculous advent of the sun. For though the celestial virgin is also called Stella Matutina, the morning star, though it is possible to see on her the splendor of a divine mark, though the recognition of this source of blessings brings joy to the heart of the artist. Yet it is no more than a simple image reflected by the mirror of wisdom. In spite of its importance and the space given to it by the authors, this visible but intangible star bears witness to that other, which crowned the divine child at his birth. The star which led the Magi to the cave at Bethlehem, as St. Chrysostom tells us came to rest before dispersing on the Savior's head and surrounded him with luminous glory. I will stress this point, although I am sure that few will thank me for it. We are truly concerned with a nocturnal star whose light shines without great brightness at the pole of the hermetic sky. It is, therefore, important, without allowing oneself to be led astray by appearances, to inquire about this terrestrial sky mentioned by Vincilus Lavinius of Moravia and dwelt on at length by Jacobus Tolius. You will have understood what this sky is, from the following little commentary of mine and by which the alchemical sky will have been disclosed. For the sky is immense and clothes the fields in purple light, in which one has recognized one's stars and one's sun. It is essential to consider well that the sky and the earth, although they are confused in the original cosmic chaos, differ neither in substance nor in essence, but become different in quality, quantity, and virtue. Does not the alchemical earth, which is chaotic, inert, and sterile, contain nevertheless the philosophic sky? Would it then be impossible for the artist, the imitator of nature and of the divine great work? with the help of the secret fire and the universal spirit, to separate in his little world the luminous, clear, crystalline parts from the dark, coarse and dense parts? Further, this separation must be made, consisting in the extraction of light from darkness and accomplishing the work of the first of the great days of Solomon. It is by means of this process that we are able to know what the philosophic earth is and what the adepts have named the sky of the wise. Philalethes, who in his Entrée Overte au Palais, Ferme du Roi, has dealt at greatest length on the practice of the work, mentions the hermetic star and infers the cosmic magic of its appearance. It is the miracle of the world, the assembly of superior virtues in the inferior ones. 
That is why the Almighty has marked it with an extraordinary sign. The wise men saw it in the east, were struck with amazement, and knew at once that a king most pure had been born into the world. As for you, as soon as you see his star, follow it to the cradle, where you will see the lovely child. Then the adept reveals the manner of operating. Let four parts be taken of our fiery dragon, which hides our magic steel in its belly, and nine parts of our lodestone, Mix them together by burning Vulcan in the form of mineral water on which a scum will float which must be removed. Throw away the crust, take the inner part, purge three times by fire and by salt, which will be done easily if Saturn has seen his image in the mirror of Mars. Finally, Philolathes adds, And the Almighty set his royal seal on the work and adorns it specially therewith. The star is not truly a sign peculiar to the labor of the great work. It may be met with in a number of alchemical combinations, special procedures and spagyric operations of comparatively little importance. Nevertheless, it always has the same meaning, showing the partial or total transformation of the bodies on which it is fixed. A typical example is given us by Johann Friedrich Helvetius in an extract from his golden calf, Vitulus Aureus, which I translate, a certain golden goldsmith of La Haye, whose name is Grillus, a practiced disciple of alchemy, but a very poor man according to the nature of this science, some years ago asked my greatest friend, that is to say, Johann Caspar Notner, the dyer of clothes, for some spirits of salt prepared not in the ordinary manner. When Notner asked whether the special spirits of salt was to be used for metals or not, Grill replied for metals. He then poured the spirits of salt on some lead, which he had placed in a glass receptacle used for preserves or food. Now, after a period of two weeks, there appeared floating a very strange and resplendent silvery star, as though drawn with a compass by a very skillful artist whereupon Grill, filled with immense joy, told us that he had already seen the visible star of the philosophers, which he had probably read about in Basil Valentine. I, myself, and many other honorable men looked with extreme amazement at the star floating on the spirits of salt, while at the bottom the lead remained the color of ashes and swollen like a sponge. However, after an interval of seven or nine days, this moisture of the spirits of salt, absorbed by the great heat of the July air, disappeared and the star went down to the bottom and rested on this spongy and earthly lead. This result caused amazement to no small number of witnesses. Finally, Grill assayed the part of the same ash-colored lead which had the star adhering to it, and he obtained from one pound of lead twelve ounces of assayed silver and from these two ounces, besides two ounces of excellent gold. This is Helvetius's story. I quote in order to illustrate the presence of the sign of the star on all the internal modifications of bodies treated philosophically. However, I would not like to be the cause of any fruitless and disappointing work which might be undertaken by some enthusiastic readers, based on the reputation of Helvetius. The probity of the eyewitnesses, and perhaps too on my constant concern for truth. That is why I draw the attention of those wishing to repeat the process to the fact that two essential pieces of data are missing in this account namely, the exact chemical composition of the hydrochloric acid and the preliminary operations carried out in the metal. No chemist will contradict me when I say that ordinary lead, whatever it may be, will never take on the appearance of pumice stone by being subjected cold to the action of muratic acid. Several preparatory operations are, therefore, necessary to cause the dilation of the metal, to separate out from it the coarsest impurities and its perishable elements, in order to bring it finally, by means of the requisite fermentation, to that state of swelling which obliges it to assume a soft, spongy structure, already showing a very marked tendency towards a profound change in its specific properties. Blaise de Visenaire and Naxagoras, for example, have spoken at length of the expediency of a long preliminary cooking process. For if it is true that common lead is dead because it has suffered reduction and because, as Basil Valentine says, a great flame will consume a little fire, 
It is nonetheless true that the same metal, patiently fed a fiery substance, will be reanimated, will little by little regain its lost activity and from being an inert chemical mass will become a living philosophic body. The reader may be surprised that I have spent so much time on a single point of the doctrine, even devoting the greater part of this preface to it, and in doing so, I fear that I may have exceeded the usual aim of writing of this kind. However, it must be obvious how logical it was for me to dilate on this subject, which, I maintain, leads us straight into Fulcanelli's text. Indeed, right from the beginning my master has dwelt on the primary role of the star, this mineral theophany which announces with certainty the tangible solution of the great secret concealed in religious buildings. This is the Mystère de Cathedral. The very title of the work, which, after the 1926 printing consisting of only 300 copies, we are bringing out in a second edition augmented by three drawings by Julien Champagne and by Fulcanelli's original notes collected just as they were without the least addition or alteration. The latter referred to a very agonizing question, with which the master was concerned for a long time, and on which I shall say a few words in connection with the demeure philosophale. However, if la mystère de cathédrale need any justification, it would be enough to point out that this book has restored to light the phonetic Kabbalah, whose principles and application have been completely lost. After this detailed and precise elucidation, and after the brief treatment of it, which I gave in connection with the centaur, the man-horse of Plessis-Bourré, in De Logis Alchimique. This mother tongue need never be confused with the Jewish Kabbalah. Though never spoken, the phonetic Kabbalah, this forceful idiom, is easily understood, and it is, at least according to Cyrano de Bergerac, the instinct or voice of nature. By contrast, the Jewish Kabbalah, is full of transpositions, inversions, substitutions, and calculations, as arbitrary as they are abstruse. This is why it is important to distinguish between the two words, Kabbalah and Kabbalah, in order to use them knowledgeably. Kabbalah derives from the Latin Kabbalus, a horse. Kabbalah is from the Hebrew Kabbalah, which means tradition. Finally. Figurative meanings like coterie, underhand dealing or intrigue, developed in modern usage by analogy, should be ignored so as to reserve for the noun kabola the only significance which can be assured for it. This is the one which Fulcanelli himself confirmed in such a masterly way by rediscovering the lost key to the gay science, the language of the gods, the language of the birds. It is the language with which Jonathan Swift, that strange dean of St. Patrick's, was thoroughly familiar and which he used with so much knowledge and virtuosity. Savigny, August 1957 Introduction by Walter Lang Two universes, the universe of science and the universe of alchemy. To the scientist, alchemy is a farrago of medieval nonsense, which enlightened materialist method has rightly consigned to the discard. To the alchemist, the scientific universe is no more than an abstraction from a much greater whole. Behind science, says the alchemist, there is science. All unsuspected except by a negligible few in every age, there exists a technology of noumena as superior to the technology of phenomena as a supernova is to a candle flame. To the alchemist, all the phenomena of the universe are combinations of a single prime energy inaccessible to ordinary senses. Only a minute cross-section of the total cosmic spectrum is bent by the senses, and so rendered tangible. Science has defined this minute abstraction as its total concern, and is therefore condemned to turn endlessly inside a nutshell of its own making learning ever more and more about less and less. Since alchemists are popularly regarded as at best deluded and at worst deranged, a claim that alchemy is not only science but science, not only a religion but religion, is apt to be dismissed out of hand as derisory. 
The scientific standpoint begins by being consistent. Man has certain senses, and he has developed extensions of his senses, which he calls instruments. So equipped, he investigates the universe around him, and occasionally, the universe inside himself. As there is no sensory evidence for any other kind of universe, why drag one in? Dragging in hypotheses, which are unnecessary to explain encountered facts, is an affront to the principles of Occam's razor, and therefore to scientific good sense. Insofar as any discipline is entitled to define its own concerns, this is entirely legitimate. What is not so tenable is to imply that because science has selected one possible universe, the universe of fact, and has been superbly successful in charting it, no other universe can possibly exist. Science, to be fair, does not exactly say this, but it is very happy to see the implication accepted. The situation is really the Plato Caves allegory one stage up. In Plato's cave, the shadow men live in a seemingly logical world. To them, a more solid world, and one inhabited by men with real eyesight, is a hypothesis unnecessary to explain the shadow world they live in. The shadow men say, in effect, We know nothing of this superior world you talk about, and we don't want to know. We have our own terms of reference, and we find them satisfactory. Please go away. This is precisely the attitude of modern materialist science to alchemy. In terms of the universe, we measure and know. Your supposed universe is nonsense. Therefore, we have no hesitation in asserting with complete confidence that your ideas are delusional. In effect, no case abused the plaintiff's counsel. But is there no case? For some thousands of years, some of the best intellects of all cultures have been occupied with the ideas of alchemy. Weighed solely on statistical probability, does it seem likely that an entirely imaginary philosophy should attract ceaseless generations of men? The impasse is worse than it need be because of an almost accidental factor. Alchemy, so far as science has heard, is concerned with making gold, and such an activity is so associated with human credulity, cupidity, and unscience generally that ordinary philosophy begs to be excused from involvement in anything so obviously puerile. Is alchemy concerned with making gold? Only in a specific case, within a total situation. Alchemists are concerned with gold in as much the same way that Mesmer was concerned with hypnotism. The 20th century took a single aspect of mesmerism, truncated even that, and used the fragment for its own egoistic ends. It declared that it had investigated mesmerism, exposed its ridiculous pretensions, and rendered what was left scientific. Goethe has a word for this process, written in German, translated to English. Whoever wants to describe and recognize something living must first drive out the spirit. Then, indeed, he has the parts in hand, unfortunately missing only the spiritual bond. Truly, science drives out the spirit from the whole and proudly displays the separate bits. Dead. All dead. If alchemy isn't making gold, what is it? Wilmshurst has defined it as the exact science of the regeneration of the human soul from its present sense-immersed state and to the perfection and nobility of that divine condition in which it was originally created. However, he immediately goes on to offer a second definition which clearly implies that, as with gold-making, soul-making is again only a specific case. By inference, a general theory of alchemy might be ventured. Alchemy is a total science of energy transformation. The action of an absolute in differentiating a prime source substance into a phenomenal universe is an operation in alchemy. The creation of galactic matter from energy and the creating of energy from matter is alchemy. God is an alchemist. The decay of radium into lead with the release of radioactivity is alchemy. Nature is an alchemist. The explosion of a nuclear bomb is alchemy. The scientist is now an alchemist. All such energy transformations are fraught with great danger, and the secrecy which has always surrounded hermeticism is concerned with this aspect among others. Nuclear energy was undoubtedly foreseen thousands of years ago. 
Chinese alchemists are said to have told their pupils that not even a fly on the wall should be allowed to witness an operation. Woe unto the world, they said, if the military ever learned the great secret. The military have learned the great secret, or at any rate, one specific aspect of it. And woe indeed to the world, for in the arrogant alchemy of nuclear science there is no place for Goethe's Gestiga's Bont. But if it has taken Western technology so long to uncover a single aspect of the subject, how is it that Bronze Age Egypt and Pythagorean Greece reputedly knew the whole science? Here even the most guarded speculation must seem outrageous. Materialist science is content, or was until very recently, to suppose that life began as an accident, and that once the accident happened, all subsequent steps in evolution would, or at any rate could, follow as the mechanical consequence of the factors initially and subsequently present. Perhaps the process was improbable, but it was possible. Recent consideration, however, appears to show that by its intrinsic nature, chance expressly excludes such a possibility. For evolution to take place, there is required at every step a shift away from less organization towards more organization. The mechanistic view asserts that this enhancement of organization, this negative entropy, could be progressively established from the mechanical consolidation of favorable variations. Recent work in applying mathematical theory to biology suggests that there is a very big hole indeed in this particular bucket. Even if an increase in order arises fortuitously, this accidental shift must survive if it is to be built upon by the next similar accident. But its survival is by no means assured. Indeed, it appears to be vulnerable to collapse in proportion to its achievement. Even in the case of primitive life forms, and certainly in higher life forms, the number of possible combinations present at every stage is enormous. So enormous as to require that entropy must always increase at the expense of chance arisings in the contrary direction. Statistically, evolution could not happen. As it demonstrably did happen, it must have done so not merely against probability, but actually against the possibilities present in a closed system. The conclusion seems unavoidable. The evolutionary process was not a closed system. By extension, evolution and its present end product, man, must have been contrived by forces outside the system, the biosphere, in which it occurred. Such an operation involving the conscious manipulation of energy levels may be taken as an operation in alchemy. Whether the artist who accomplished this great work was a single intelligence or a consortium of intelligences seems immaterial. But the myths and classical traditions of demigods is in the highest degree suggestive. If it is an acceptable proposition that man was the result of a carefully contrived alchemical operation by higher powers, is it not at least possible that he was given, in addition to consciousness, an insight into the transformation technique that produced him? On this assumption, modern man might have, in his own subconscious, fragmentary data which exceptional individuals could recover and assemble into a technology of alchemy. Inevitably, such men would be aware of other men who had made the same immense leap, and such groups would combine to create schools of alchemy. There are other theories. One of the most arcane of human traditions suggests that the humanity of our Adam was not the Earth's first human race. Some very advanced alchemists have hinted at a range of previous humanities in excess of 30. If this is the true but wholly unsuspected history of our planet, much knowledge may have been selectively accumulated in a span of existence which imagination is inadequate even to visualize. At each successive apocalypse, an arc would go out, encapsulating not only the germ plasm necessary to found the next humanity, but with it also some vehicle, some psychological micro-dot, containing the totality of accumulated knowledge. On this assumption, the technique of alchemy would have reached us as a transmission from ancestors whose existence we do not even suspect. A third possibility is that the master alchemists who made man in a solar laboratory have an interest in yet another transformation, the alchemization of man into planetary spirit. Their work may not yet be done, 
On this assumption, isolated scraps of suitable material would from time to time be selected for further processing in solar alembic. The base metal in this case would consist of exceptional human beings, and since they would be at a level of incipient conscious energy, they would cooperate in their own transformation. Whether any or a combination of all these possibilities is the explanation of the presence of alchemy throughout human history, it is clear that alchemy existed at the dawn of the human story we know. The material of the Egyptian Book of the Dead was said to be old already when it was assembled by Semti in the first dynasty some 5,000 years ago. Perhaps due to the second law of thermodynamics, which may be as relevant in biology and psychology as it is in dynamics, the evolutionary ferment of Egyptian alchemy began to evolve. Maybe the mechanism of its degeneration was a shift in the level of will from which it proceeded. An evolutionary technique would thus become increasingly enlisted for involutionary ends. Alchemy, God-orientated, would become magic, self-dedicated. Such would be the dying Egypt against which Moses invade. As always, however, knowledge of the technique was compressed. A torch was lit. An ark was launched. Before Egypt became totally submerged in idolatry, the great secret was transmitted. The seeds of alchemy were scattered. Some fell on good ground and flourished. Some fell on stony ground and died. Egypt seems to have sown chiefly in Greece and Israel, perhaps also in China. Strange as the idea may be, Greece appears to have made less of her chances than she might. The glory that was Greece may have been a poor shadow of the glory that might have been. Also, Greece stood to Rome as parent to offspring, and Rome proved to be a delinquent child and a degenerate adult in the community of human cultures. The plant of alchemy flowered only briefly in Greece, and the seeds that blew to Rome never germinated at all. The transmission from Egypt to Israel was initially one of great promise, but again the promise was not realized. Whether wilting of the plant in Israel was due to the dispersion, or whether the dispersion was a consequence of the Jewish failure to manage their alchemical inheritance is not known. The elders of Jewry, at any rate, were unable to find conditions within which their inheritance could be brought to its full actualization. To ensure its survival in some measure, they were obliged to compromise dangerously. They externalized some of it in the Zohar and maintained a small initiated inner circle. It may be that this circle, very greatly depleted, survived in Europe in isolated pockets like Krakow until the 30s of the present century. While Greece sowed abortively in Rome during her lifetime, she also sowed posthumously and successfully in Arabia. Here, the alchemical energy channeled through the esoteric schools of Islam and through exceptional individuals like Jabir, externalized in the veritable explosion of Mohammedan art and science of the 8th to the 12th centuries. The wave of Islam's expansion reached Spain, where two streams appeared to have joined up. In Seville and Granada, there were initiated Jews who carried the Egyptian transmission. They met Arab initiates who carried the Greek transmission, and the latter were perhaps reinforced from a permanent powerhouse from which all evolutionary operations are directed. If it is true that some beads of mercury were reunited through Muhammad, two more were reunited in Spain. Out of this confluence grew a very large part of the whole of Western civilization, which we have inherited and whose origin hardly one man in a million has ever suspected in seven centuries. The current which flowed from the beads of mercury, which were reunited in Spain, flowed into an immense, invisible force field over Europe. The nature of this noumenal structure can never be glimpsed, and its functions in a higher dimension cannot even be imagined. It externalized into the common life in a series of culture components, which in aggregate constitute a large part of Western civilization. A selection of these factors at random would include the Christian pilgrimage, based on the form established by the Cluniacs to St. James of Compostela, the Crusades, heraldry, the orders of chivalry, chivalry, from the horse as a glyph of the alchemical volatile, castle architecture, the Gothic cathedrals, illumination and embroidery, the troubadours, Albigenses, Cathars and Minazangar, the courtly romances, the Arthurian quest theme, 
reuniting the Celtic pre-Christian grail quest, the cult of the Virgin and Catholicism, the theological philosophy of Albertus Magnus and St. Thomas Aquinas, the cosmology of Bacon, the devotional systems of St. Francis, St. John of the Cross, and St. Teresa, the wandering players, jester, harlequinades, and mystery plays, specialized dancing, falconry, and certain ball games, Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism, gardening, the Spanish gardens, playing cards, the language of the birds concept, the craft guilds, archery, some medicine like immunology, paracelsus, and homeopathy, and cybernetics, Raymond Lully. All the foregoing were the externalized forms of a major alchemical operation at an invisible level. Only one aspect, however, that of chemical alchemy, used the terminology which has been subsequently identified with the word. For some hundreds of years, alchemy existed in Europe as a real science of transformation at many levels. At one level, it was concerned with the ultimate transformation of human souls. Perhaps because Christianity had rejected the wisdom component of its total revelation, a decision in which Constantine was probably crucial, alchemy, being concerned with the totality, had to operate in disguise. Precisely because Orthodox religion was defective in the wisdom component, any modality which contained it was ipso facto heresy. The genuine Christian alchemists, estimated to number 4,000 between 1200 and 1656, readopted a chemical code which had served in similar circumstances in the past. A certain principle of nature, rendered in the codex attributed to Hermes as above so below, ensured that the alchemical process at its hidden level could be represented with full integrity by the terminology of a lower discipline. This lower discipline, metallic chemistry, was all that the common life of Europe ever understood by the word alchemy. Since Jung's work in alchemy began to infiltrate modern psychology, alchemy as a mental, or at any rate a non-physical process, has become a fashionable acceptance. Typical of the reductionist attitudes of the 20th century is the current belief that alchemy has now been explained. It is nothing but an early and crude study of psychology and perhaps of ESP. Dazzled by the success of science in providing a label for everything, few have bothered to inquire whether the aphorism of Hermes, as above, so below, might not require a process valid at mental level to be equally valid at physical level. A label has been affixed, and therefore the mystery is no more. No one, it seems, notices any conflict between the Jungian psychological interpretation and the documented historical record of men like Helvetius and the cosmopolite Alexander Seton, who demonstrably did make tangible yellow 22-carat gold. That which is above is as that which is below might never have been written. Throughout the whole European record of alchemy, its genuine practitioners appear to have been under certain obligations which may in fact apply to artists and the work of every age. It seems that they are required to leave behind them some thread which those who come after may use as a guideline across the web of Ariadne. The indications provided must be in code, and the code must be self-canceling. That is, an inquirer who does not possess the first secret must be infallibly prevented from discovering the second. Unto him that hath is nowhere better exemplified than in the attempt to study alchemical texts. Given that the inquirer knows the first secret, search and unceasing labor may rest from the code the next step following, but the searcher will need to have made progress in his own personal practice before he is able to unravel a further step. Thus, the secret protects itself. In the course of his work, the alchemist may come to understand that certain familiar legends have a wholly new, practical, and unsuspected meaning. He may suddenly discover what Abraham was required to sacrifice and why, what the star in the east really heralds, what the cross may symbolize, and why the veil of the temple was rent. The strictly alchemical aspect of the great work has been quiescent in Europe for about three centuries, but rare and exceptional individuals still find their way through the maze, perhaps by making contact with a source outside Europe, and achieve one or other of the degrees of the magnum opus. Few such instances come to the knowledge of the outside world, 
But one exception to the general rule is the case of the modern alchemist who has come to be known as Fulcanelli. In the early 20s, a French student of alchemy, Eugène Cancelier, was studying under the man now known as Fulcanelli. One day, the latter charged Cancelier with the task of publishing a manuscript and then disappeared. The manuscript was the now famous Mestre de Cathedrale, and its publication caused a sensation in esoteric circles in Europe. From internal evidence, the author was a man who had either completed or was on the brink of completing the magnum opus. Interest in such an individual among those who knew what was involved was enormous. For nearly half a century, painstaking research has gone on in an effort to trace the vanished master. Repeated attempts by private individuals to pick up the trail, and on at least one occasion by an international intelligence agency, have all ended in a blank wall of silence. To most, the conclusion seemed inescapable. Fulcanelli, if he ever existed, must be dead. One man knew better, Fulcanelli's formal pupil, Cancelier. After a lapse of many years, Cancelier received a message from the alchemist and met him at a prearranged rendezvous. The reunion was brief, for Fulcanelli once again severed contact and once again disappeared without leaving a trace of his whereabouts. One circumstance of the reunion was very remarkable, and in an alchemical sense of the highest significance. Fulcanelli had grown younger. Cancelier has told the present writer, the master, when Cancelier had worked with him, was already a very old man, but he carried his eighty years lightly. Thirty years later, I was to see him again, and as I have mentioned, and he appeared to be a man of fifty. That is to say, he appeared to be no older than I was myself. One other possible appearance of the mysterious master alchemist is reported by the French researcher Jacques Berger. While working as assistant to André Helbronner, the noted physicist who was later to be killed by the Nazis, Berger was approached one day by an impressive individual who asked Berger to pass on to Helbronner a strange and highly knowledgeable warning. This was to the effect that orthodox science was on the brink of manipulating nuclear energy. The stranger said it was his duty to warn that the same abyss had been crossed by humanity in the past with disastrous consequences. Knowing human nature, he had no hope that such a warning would have any effect, but it was his duty to give it. The mysterious stranger then left. Berger is convinced to this day that he was in the presence of Fulcanelli. Treatises have been written to prove that Fulcanelli was a member of the former French royal family, the Valois that he was the painter Julien Champagne, that he was this or that occultist. Not a few were driven to the conclusion that Fulcanelli was a myth and that no such person had ever existed. This theory is a little difficult to sustain in view of the existence of Mystère de Cathédrale. This work is authoritatively accepted as the work of a man who had gone far, very far, in the practice of alchemy. The myth theory is also untenable against the testimony of Cancelier. In September 1922, in a laboratory at Sarcelles, and in the presence of the painter Julien Champagne and the chemist Gaston Sauvage, Cancelier himself made an alchemical transmutation of a hundred grams of gold using a minute quantity of the powder of projection given to him by his teacher. Thus, there is a European, alive at the present time, who personally testifies not only to the existence of Fulcanelli, but to the vertical nature of an event which modern science regards as an absurd myth. Legend has it that this transmutation took place in a gasworks. The account seems the plainest possible statement of a purely physical event. Alchemists, however, warn repeatedly that when their descriptions seem plainest, the camouflage factor is highest. The alerted reader will certainly consider here that a gas works is a site where a volatile substance is produced from a heavy mineral and will recall that alchemy is a process of separating the fine from the gross. In being allowed to perform an alchemical operation with energy lent him by another, Cancelier thus joins a remarkable band of privileged and perhaps bewildered people who through history have recorded the same experience.
These include Johann Schweitzer, whose experience was investigated by Spinoza, Professor Deinheim of Freiburg in 1602, and Christian II, Elector of Saxony, in the following year. But for all practical purposes, Fulcanelli has vanished as though he never existed. Only his contributions to the literature of alchemy remains. Mystère de Cathédrale. It has long been believed that the Gothic cathedrals were secret textbooks of some hidden knowledge, that behind the gargoyles and the glyphs, the rose windows and the flying buttresses, a mighty secret lay, all but openly displayed. This is no longer a theory, given that the reader of Mystère de Cathédrale has even begun to suspect the first secret. Fulcanelli's legacy is at once seen as an exposition of an incredible fact, that, wholly unsuspected by the profane, the Gothic cathedrals have for 700 years offered European man a course of instruction in his own possible evolution. About one thing it seems impossible to have any doubt. The unknown who wrote Mystère de Cathédrale knew. Fulcanelli speaks as one having authority by pointing to a glyph in Notre-Dame or a statue in Amiens and relating an unknown sculptor's work to some ancient or modern text, Fulcanelli is indicating the steps in a process he has himself been through. Like all who truly knew, from Hermes through Geber and the Greek and Arab artists to Lully, Paracelsus, and Flamel, Fulcanelli masks and reveals in equal measure and like all before him, he is wholly silent on the initial step of the practice. But in his method of repeatedly underlining certain words, and perhaps in some curious sentences on the rose windows, he suggests, as explicitly as he dares, the mightiest secret that man may ever discover. Behold, said Bohm, he will show it to you plain enough if you be a magus and worthy, else you shall remain blind still. Le Mystère de Cathedrale 1. The strongest impression of my early childhood, I was seven years old, an impression of which I still retain a vivid memory, was the emotion aroused in my young heart by the sight of a Gothic cathedral. I was immediately enraptured by it. I was in an ecstasy, struck with wonder, unable to tear myself away from the attraction of the marvelous, from the magic of such splendor such immensity, such intoxication expressed by this more divine than human work. Since then the vision has been transformed, but the original impression remains. And if custom has modified the spontaneous and moving character of my first contact, I've never acquired a defense against a sort of rapture when faced with those beautiful picture books erected in our closes and raising to heaven their pages of sculptured stone. In what language, by what means, could I express my admiration? How could I show my gratitude to those silent masterpieces, those masters without words and without voice? How could I show the thankfulness which fills my heart for everything they have taught me to appreciate, to recognize, and to discover? Without words and without voice? What am I saying? If those stone books have their sculptured letters, their phrases in bas-relief, and their thoughts in pointed arches, nevertheless they speak also through the imperishable spirit which breathes from their pages. They are clearer than their younger brothers, the manuscripts and printed books. They have the advantage over them in being translatable only in a single absolute sense. It is simple in expression, naive and picturesque in interpretation, a sense purged of subtleties, of illusions, of literary ambiguities. The language of stones spoken by this new art, as J. F. Coifs says with much truth, is at the same time clear and sublime, speaking alike to the humblest and to the most cultured heart. What a moving language it is, this Gothic of the stones, a language so moving indeed that the songs of Orlando, de Lassis, or Palestrina, the organ music of Handel or Frescobaldi, the orchestral works of Beethoven or Cherubini, or which is greater than all these? The simple and severe Gregorian chant, perhaps the only real chant there is. 
do nothing but add to the emotions which the cathedral itself has already aroused. Woe to those who do not like Gothic architecture, or at least let us pity them as those who are without heart. The Gothic cathedral, that sanctuary of the tradition, science, and art, should not be regarded as a work dedicated solely to the glory of Christianity, but rather as a vast concretion of ideas, of tendencies, of popular beliefs, a perfect whole to which we can refer without fear whenever we would penetrate the religious, secular, philosophic, or social thoughts of our ancestors. The bold vaulting, the nobility of form, the grandeur of the proportions, and the beauty of the execution combine to make a cathedral an original work of incomparable harmony, but not one, it seems, concerned entirely with religious observance. If the tranquility in the ghostly, multicolored light from the tall stained-glass windows and the silence combine as an invitation to prayer, predisposing us to meditation, the trappings, on the other hand, the structure and the ornamentation, in their extraordinary power, release and reflect less edifying sensations, a more secular and, quite bluntly, an almost pagan spirit. Beside the fervent inspiration born of a strong faith, the thousand and one preoccupations of the great heart of the people can be discerned there. The declaration of its conscience, of its will, the reflection of its thought at its most complex, abstract, essential, and autocratic. If people go to the building to take part in religious services, if they enter it following a funeral cortege or the joyful procession of a high festival, they also throng there in many other circumstances. Political meetings are held there under the aegis of the bishop. The prince of grain and livestock is discussed there. The drapers fix the price of their cloth there. People hurry there to seek comfort, to ask for advice, to beg for pardon. There is scarcely a guild which does not use the cathedral for the passing out ceremony of its new journeyman. Scarcely a guild which does not meet there once a year under the protection of its patron saint. During the great medieval period, it was the scene of other ceremonies, very popular with the masses. There was the Feast of Fools, or of the Wise, a processional hermetic fair, which used to set out from the church with its pope, its dignitaries, its enthusiasts, and its crowds. The common people of the Middle Ages, noisy, frolicsome, jocular, bursting with vitality, enthusiasm and spirit, and spread through the town. What a comedy it all was! with an ignorant clergy thus subjected to the authority of the disguised science and crushed under the weight of undeniable superiority. Ah, the Feast of Fools, with its triumphal chariot of Bacchus drawn by a male and female centaur, naked as the god himself and accompanied by the great Pan, an obscene carnival taking possession of a sacred building, nymphs and naiads emerging from the bath, Gods of Olympus minus their clouds and minus their clothes. Juno, Diana, Venus, and Latona converging on a cathedral to hear Mass. And what a Mass! It was composed by the initiate Pierre de Corbet, Archbishop of Seine, and modeled on a pagan rite. Here a congregation of the year 1220 uttered the bacchanal cry of joy. Evo, Evo, and scholars in ecstasy replied. Written in Latin here, but translated to English, this is the clear day of clear days, and this is the festive day of festive days. There was also the Feast of the Donkey, almost as gaudy as the one just mentioned, with the triumphal entry under the sacred archway of Master Eliboron, whose hoof, Sabbath, once trod the streets of Jerusalem. Thus, our glorious Christ-bearer was celebrated in a special service, which praised him and words recalling the epistle. As this asinine power, which was worth to the church the gold of Arabia, the incense and the myrrh of the land of Saba. The priest, being unable to understand this grotesque parody, had to accept it in silence, his head bent under the ridicule poured out by these mystifiers of the land of Saba, or Kaaba that is, the Kabbalists themselves. Confirmation of these curious celebrations is to be found graven by the chisels of the master image-makers of the time. Indeed, Witkowski writes that in the nave of Notre-Dame of Strasbourg, 
The bas-relief on one of the capitals of the great pillars represents a satirical procession in which a pig may be seen carrying a holy stoop, followed by donkeys dressed in priestly clothes and monkeys bearing various religious attributes, together with a fox enclosed in a shrine. It is the procession of the fox or the feast of the donkey. We may add that an identical scene is illuminated in folio 40 of manuscript number 5055 in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Finally, there were some bizarre events in which a hermetic meaning, often a very precise one, was discernible. These were held every year with the Gothic Church as their theater. Examples include the flagellation of the Alleluia, in which the choir boys energetically whipped their humming tops, sabbats, down the aisles of Cathedral of Langres, the procession of the Shrovetide Carnival, the devilry of Chamon, the procession and banquets of the Enfanterie de Jeunet. The latter was the last echo of the Feast of Fools, with its mad mother, its bawdy diplomas, its banner on which two brothers head to foot delighted in uncovering their buttocks. Until 1538, when the custom died out, a strange ball game was played inside Saint-Étienne, the Cathedral of Auxerre. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.